Brothers and sisters in Christ, today we read from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Lord, what a precious gift we have in your Son, Jesus, the redemption from our sins, freedom from regret, freedom from fear, freedom from worry. We welcome you here in this space and in our hearts as we humbly receive your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, good morning, IBC family. I want to thank you, uh, Maya and Marcus and Andrea and Ben, for leading in that very just sweet time of worship this morning. Thank you, wherever you're sitting, I'm not sure, but thank you so much for that. And I also want to just say, uh, I, like Pastor Tom said, I am also incredibly grateful for how God raises up many and most of you for various works of ministry. Uh, one such ministry that we were able to highlight and give thanks for is that ministry of grief share. And uh, unless you've gone through it, you may not appreciate it in the same way, but it is one of our values as a church that the body takes care of the body. That it, We really believe that strongly. The body takes care of the body. It's not on any one person. It is a joint collaborative effort. And as the Spirit of God empowers you and even gives you insight and leads you to another person, I love that that happens in a variety of ways already and even formally through that ministry. So thank you, Grief Share, for just being so faithful, especially Linda Flagel, who I think in the very beginning started it all uh, really on the eve of her husband dying. And this is how this ministry was brought into our church context. So I'm so grateful for that. Thank you so much. Um. You know, it's interesting, kind of come, this is not intended to um, dismiss or uh, not be as, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the way I began my sermon was not necessarily on a grief share tone, I'll put it that way, the way I was thinking of it and stuff, and so it was, it's kind of like, like, how do I kind of go from there to where I originally thought? Um, you know, but the fact is, sometimes we don't really appreciate things until we don't have them, right? Sometimes we don't appreciate people in our lives until all of a sudden they're gone. Sometimes we don't appreciate where we live 
until we are caused or forced to move another place and like, man, the grass always seems greener sometimes until you move there and you realize it's just as brown as the where you came from. Uh, whatever it is, sometimes we just don't appreciate things in the same way until we no longer have it. I think this, uh, that concept or that phenomenon is especially true when it comes to uh, various amenities that we are so used to experiencing in our lives, right? Um, for example, uh, when I go on a, a missions trip, or I know Pastor Tom can relate to this as well, and some of you, when you go on a missions trip, especially in a kind of more third world context, uh, sometimes you realize, oh, the things that we take for granted in our lives, right? You just turn on the hot water and it just flows down endlessly until you decide you are done with your shower. Well, you go to India and it's like, hey, we have electricity on today, so we're able to heat up some water to pour over your head. And that water, don't drink it because you're going to have to take some uh, antibiotics when you're done. Uh, so don't, don't try not to get it in your mouth. And you just go, oh, wow, what we kind of uh, uh, take for granted for in, the, in this kind of maybe modern West isn't necessarily people's reality everywhere around. When I go backpacking, I'm especially reminded of the amenities that I no longer have. And even though I think there's great advancements in backpacking gear technology, they still are bleak in comparison. For example, when I'm setting up my tent and you've uh, been hiking all day long, you're sweaty, and you're like, all right, here's this little nice cool mountain spring to go get refreshed in. That cool mountain spring is a called a cold water plunge. It is not a nice, balmy, uh, steamy shower that you're used, to, uh, maybe accustomed to, that you just came off from. That is one of those hallelujah type experiences where you jump in there and it's just like get in, get out, and then you lay on this beautiful, soft mattress called a thermarest, and uh, and that thermarest doesn't really allow you to rest, but. Five days later, when you come back, that first shower and that first time you lay down in your bed, you're like, oh, how I've missed you. <laughs> this is amazing. The point is, sometimes you don't realize what you have until you have it. But I believe that the opposite is also very much true in our lives. Sometimes we have no idea what we're missing until we experience it for the first time. I mean, have you ever gone to Disneyland or to Legoland for the first time with your kids and you see their eyes just go, <gasps> and that's also the look of the parents too, but for different reasons. You know, it's, it's just like, <gasps> this seems like an overwhelming day that we're just about to embark on, you know, but you see these kids and they're so excited about going in there and experiencing something that they maybe have heard about, but never quite experienced firsthand. Or adults, you know, we have our own ways that things that have been kind of uh, uh, incorporated or introduced in our lives, right? I don't know why it came to my mind. We don't even have this appliance, but I've been told about it. The all-amazing air fryer, right? <laughs> the air fryer, the appliance of all appliances. Instapot, you're out. Air fryer, you're in, basically. Again, I can't speak from firsthand experience, but I've heard from some of you that apparently that's like kind of the a big deal, you know? If you got the air fryer, you can pretty much do everything. And there's some heads nodding right now, so yeah. So maybe you're kind of like, I don't, what do you think, Corey? Instapot all the way? See, we are still Instapotters, so yeah. Or you need both. Okay, we will go into that another time. The point is, some of the things that we're used to today, right now, that we're used to interacting with, especially the cell phones that are in our pockets, you're like, 
Man, 20, 30 years ago, how in the world did we function? Our kids are asking that question. How did you survive without all this modern technology? You know, it's like you must have been so bored in your life just looking at each other and talking or something. Go figure. The fact is, sometimes we have no idea what we're missing until we've experienced it the first time. And I think this is actually the case that, that, that Adam in the Garden of Eden came to. This was the realization that he came to early on in his life because at that point in Genesis chapter two, we see that I would say as far as Adam was concerned, he thinks or probably felt he had it all, right? I mean, Adam had perfect health. There was no ailing kind of creaks and groans like some of you are experiencing like this morning, you know, uh, snap, crackle, pop. None of that happened for Adam, Adam lived in a place called uh, the Garden of Eden, which we talked about last week. It was a place of paradise. I mean, you think, it's just like anything you could think of, it was better than that. He had all the food he could ever want at just the reach of his hand. He had uninhibited communion with his creator. As far as Adam was concerned, life was full and fulfilling in every possible way. But was it? Did Adam really have it all as he might have originally thought? Well, I think as we read from our text in Genesis chapter 2 this morning, we see very quickly that God knew that there was still something that Adam did not yet have. And that was a soulmate. That was a, that was a helper that was like him. An ally that would complement him. God knew that there was still something missing in Adam's life, a compliment for him, that, for him to rule and to live with and to multiply and fill the earth with. And so the interesting thing or the, the unique way in which God helped Adam realize or discover his need and grow his desire for this helper that complimented him was by commissioning him to name all the animals, We see in Genesis chapter 2 that God brought all the animals to Adam so that he would name them. And whatever name that Adam assigned to these animals, that was their name. That's how God was co-reigning or co-ruling with his creation, the human race. He's like, hey, you know what? I created them, but you, you name them. And whatever you call it, it's all good. We're working together in, in, in co-ruling and co-reigning on this earth. But it was through the process of naming the animals that Adam realized something. Adam realized this. He's proud, you know, this is my way of understanding at least. Hey, wait a second. Where's mine? You know, because God brings all the animals to Adam and he, start, he starts naming them and they're all kind of, kind of coming either kind of like when they go on the ark, two by two, and they're like, wait, they all got to have a counterpart with one another and where's mine? I want one. But of course, before that time, at least the way the narrative kind of helps us understand it is like Adam had everything. As far as he was concerned, he was all good until he finally realized, wait a second, maybe it isn't yet complete. And so we see that because of this, or through this, God caused Adam to fall into a perfect sleep and uses one of Adam's ribs to create the perfect match for him. And that perfect match was Eve. I hesitated to say the next thing I'm about to say, but I really appreciate the collaborative effort that these sermons sometimes take. Thank you, Brian Harden, for your, your input on this. 
he uh, forwarded me a, a joke. I mean, yeah, he called it a joke, but uh, it's called The Lost Chapter of Genesis, uh, The Lost Paragraph in Genesis. Let me read this to you. God, uh, God asked Adam, what's wrong with you? Again, this is in the context of Adam naming all the animals, right? And realizing, wait a second, where's mine? Adam, God asked, what's wrong with you? And Adam says, he didn't have anybody to talk to. And God said that he was going to make Adam a companion that, and that that companion would be a woman. And this person would gather food for you. And, and when you discover clothing, he'll, she'll wash it for you. And, and she will always agree with every decision you make. Please don't judge me on this. She will bear your children and never ask you to get up in the middle of the night to take care of them. She will not nag you and will always be the first to admit she was wrong when you've been in. Please do not form any fault, preemptive conclusions. She will never have a headache and will freely give you love and passion whenever you need it. And Adam asked God, well, what will a woman like this cost? And God says, an arm and a leg. And so Adam asked, what could I get for a rib? <laughs> and the rest is history. So <laughs> thank you, Brian, for passing that on. If you have a disagreement afterwards, please don't write it anonymously. Let's just talk afterwards. <laughs> Appreciate one-on-one conversations. No, actually, what's interesting about this whole idea of the rib, you know, where you kind of like, it just seems like this narrative detail that you're like, what is that really all about? But I think it's also equally important, if not more important, to understand what is really God communicating through the author Moses for us to understand. Yes, God could have, I think, literally used a rib and used a rib to create woman, Eve. Did he need the rib? No, he could have created, used any body part. He could use the dust like he created Adam. It wasn't about the rib except for this. The rib really stressed an important status perspective about Eve. Namely, that the, one was, the woman was neither Adam's head, suggesting some sort of superiority, and she was also not the feet, su- suggesting some sort of inferiority. But from the side, indicates equality and companionship. That's why Adam is able to say, you know, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's like, we are one and the same. Yes, we're different, but we are co-equals with one another. And so when Adam finally wakes up and sees the perfect match for the first time in his life, he breaks out in this incredible poem, ay, 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 ay. <laughs> That's how I translate it. But what he says in verse, in verse 23, he says this, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then Moses continues on a verse, in verse 24, referring to Adam's reaction and an understanding of what marriage is according to God. And he says this, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one flesh. And thus we have the world's first marriage. This morning, I want to, I want to answer a question for us in two different ways. The question is this, What is biblical marriage? What is biblical marriage? How how, how should we understand and function within the context of marriage? 
I'm going to answer that really in two different ways. The first way is this. First of all, we need to understand that marriage is God's idea. It is not a human social invention. Marriage is God's idea. It is not a human social invention. Now, this may seem absurd to have to even say this. Some of you might be going like, that's kind of like common sense maybe or no-brainer, especially if you've grown up in the church. Maybe you haven't grown up in the church. But the fact is, you and I must understand that marriage is God's idea and it's not a human social invention. The reason why this is so important is this. If marriage was a human social invention, then its purpose, its design, its endurance, and the expectations one carries into this marriage would be culturally influenced and subjectively decided. Do you understand what I'm saying? If this was a social invention for the, to kind of ease the, or figure out a plan or a strategy for cohabitation with one another, if it was really up to us, a human invention, then everything becomes culturally influenced and subjectively decided. In other words, social invention for the sake of cohabitating makes a marriage is and becomes whatever each individual wants it to be. Do what's best for you based on your terms. Do what makes you happy as you define happiness. But if marriage is God's idea and a covenant relationship that is ultimately created by him and for a divine purpose, then it is not open to reinterpretation or alteration. Let me say that again. If it is God's idea, if it's his design with divine purpose, it is not open to reinterpretation or alteration. What does this mean given our current confusion about marriage in today's social and moral climate? Well, one obvious implication is this. It means that marriage is between one man and one woman And that's it. That's it. One man, one woman, that's it. You see, if two men or two women want to be joined together by some form of commitment, they are free to do so because of the current social values and laws, but that doesn't make it a biblical marriage. People can identify their relationships at whatever commitment level and however they want, but that does not make it a biblical marriage. The laws of the land may define marriage through a democratic process, but that does not mean it is a biblically defined marriage. Marriage is God's idea. It's his design, and there's divine purpose in it. The fact that marriage is God's idea also means that there are many divine purposes that you and I must understand, accept, and apply within the context, especially if we are married or even desiring to be married or will one day be married. What purposes does God have for his, this covenant institution called marriage? There's a number of things we could talk about, and again, I am glossing over in a lot of ways many things. There are so many nuances, so many rabbit trails we could take, so many unique experiences that we could talk about. We do not have the time this morning, but I'm just kind of opening the door 
And by the way, the coffee conversation is still on the table, if you so desire. But one of the divine purposes for why God instituted this covenant relationship is to make us holy. One of God's primary designs or purposes behind marriage is for you to become or to continue in this process what the Bible calls sanctification for the purpose of making you holy. There's an author and, and pastor and, write, uh, and uh, speaker named Gary Thomas whose book I've uh, very much appreciated over the years. Uh, he wrote a book called Sacred Marriage and his thesis or th- theme that I believe is very true and biblically supported is this, the purpose of marriage is less about your happiness and more about your holiness. Just imagine if every couple coming together came into their marriage union and and speaking their marriage vows with this in mind. This is about my holiness before God more than it is about my happiness. Now, that doesn't mean that God is unconcerned with your happiness. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about your happiness. Of course God wants you to be a happy God. We've talked about that in the past. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness. Again, God cares about your happiness. He wants you to be happy. God isn't just this kind of like frowny guy in the sky or anything. He is the very definition of joy and happiness and fulfillment and of being alive. He wants you to reflect that. He wants you to experience that. But we must also understand that lasting and fulfilling happiness goes hand in hand with personal holiness. Another purpose of marriage is to mutually complete one another. You remember that Adam realized that something was not quite right. Something was off when he was naming the animals. And God didn't say that everything was really good back in Genesis chapter one. Everything was really good after he created both Adam and Eve. In other words, prior to Eve, everything was good, but it was really good when Eve came on the scene. In other words, now creation is complete. Now things are as they are intended to be. Probably the people that can most relate to this divine purpose are those who we just got to hear from, from the grief share. When we think about the divine purpose of mutually completing one another, the loss of that, you realize, man, half of me is gone. Janine Beretta said that. Half of me is gone. All of a sudden, I don't experience that same completion the same completeness that I did in the context of my marriage union with my spouse. Another purpose for marriage, according to Scripture, is that it is to multiply a godly legacy. In other words, yes, God loves children. I know in a Western context, I know some people, I've known some people who have chosen from the very beginning, hey, we're not going to have kids because kids are kind of an anchor to all the things I want to really pursue in life. And again, there's nothing wrong with pursuing other things in life. It's nothing wrong with pursuing having adventures. But the fact is, as the prophet Malachi says, God loves godly children. 
He wants godly children. He had commissioned Adam and Eve from the very beginning, and even all the animals, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with worshipers of me. Another purpose is to mirror God's image. The point is, people should know who our God is and what he is like by observing how you love and relate to your spouse. It sort of begs the question, what, what, what conclusion would they make about God by observing the way you love and relate to your spouse? But I believe one of the most important purposes of biblical marriage is so that you and I might understand how we as Christians are to live in fellowship with Jesus Christ. One of the most important purposes given by God for us to understand and to grow in is to understand our relationship with Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our second answer. Marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to his church. Marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to his church. And one of the most straightforward passages of, uh, that the Bible speaks to this purpose is found in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm actually going to ask you, even though I'm going to put the passages up there, I'm going to ask you just to turn in your own Bibles. If you have your Bibles, if you don't have one, there's maybe one in the seat back in front of you. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be reading from verses 22 through verses 33. And as you are turning there, I want to give a little context to our text that happens that starts in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5 and goes through verse 21. And so in Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 5 verse 15 and following, I don't know how if it's too small there that's perfect. Um, let me just this gives us the context for what Paul is about to say starting in verse 22 and following. Listen to this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, it's interesting that the context for what Paul is about to state in verse 22 and following, don't look yet, just kidding. What the context is really, it's all about this. We must be on guard. We must be aware. We should not be caught on our heels, so to speak, on a spiritual level because the enemy is, is prowling around, as Peter says, like a, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so we need to navigate life aware and attentive to the world in which we live, the culture in which we live, and all the values that really are contradicting what Scripture teaches to be true. So we need to walk around and look carefully how we walk. We have to pay attention, in other words. Not as unwise, but as wise. And how do we do that? We do that by making the best use of our time, because we know, we realize, the days are increasingly becoming evil. Therefore, again, there's the transition, right? Therefore, do not be foolish, but instead understand what the will of the Lord is. How do we do that? 
Don't get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but instead be filled or consumed with the Spirit. And then Paul goes into a whole long list of how are you and I to be filled with the Spirit? Well, there are many ways to be filled with the Spirit. By the way, just because of our English translations from Greek and Hebrew, and when you translate things, usually in in our English translation, when you have an I-N-G at the end, those are called participles. Here's your Greek, here's your grammar lesson here. Those actually tell us how to fulfill the exhortation or the command given in Scripture. So when, when the command is to be filled with the Spirit, and it goes into a bunch of participial phrases, this is how you do it. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody uh, to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's how you and I are filled with the Spirit. And then Paul goes into giving examples of what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He talks about how servants are supposed to be subject to their masters. He talks about how children are supposed to be subject to their parents. But the first example Paul gives is to explain what he means by submitting to one another in the context of of marriage. So here we go. Verse 22 through 24. Don't cringe too quickly. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. How are we doing, ladies? I'm not saying how you're doing currently in your marriage right now. I'm just saying how are you doing right now after reading that passage? Because I know we live in a culture in a day and age in which we're like, you just swore on stage. You just, did a, you just said a four-letter word. You said submit. I know it's more than letters than that, but... It comes across or lands on your ears differently, but it shouldn't. It shouldn't if biblically defined and understood. But what Paul says, you know, again, submitting to one another another out of reverence for Christ, and he goes into some clear, practical examples. And one thing we must understand as Paul's sharing these things, again, what gets a lot of uh, flack or uh, critique by so many others, we go, well, that was then, but this is now. Look how far we have progressed since then. That was patriarchy then, but we have progressed beyond that uh, antiquated and archaic form or system, and we are no longer enslaved to that, and now we are free. Free to what? Define it as we want to? As if Scripture was somehow not universally applicable? No. We must understand this. Paul is saying this not in just the Ephesian context. He's saying this in the context of the church, especially in regards to how you and I are to understand what marriage is truly all about, how it is intended to function by God and its intended purpose so that we might understand what it means to love and relate to Jesus Christ. And so these functional roles that we see in Ephesians chapter 5, we see that Paul says to wives, submit to your husband. But this, what we must understand is this, that does not mean that a woman is somehow subservient in status or value or worth or any of the like. 
Remember what I just talked about the rib, right? The rib by design, by narrative function, is intended to communicate this message that we are co-equals, we are helpers, we are allies, and it's together. There's no subservient or inferiority or superiority in this. We are the, the woman is extremely valuable and of worth just like her husband. They both bear God's image and they both complement one another. They are both co-heirs, co-rulers, co-laborers with God. So then what in the world is Paul talking about when he says, wives, submit to your husbands? Let me give you a definition of submission that I felt was most, at least clearly stated. What is biblical submission? Submission means to yield to another person and their desires without resistance. It is something that is done willingly as an attitude of the heart with cooperation and support for the other person. Now, of course, we've seen already that in verse 21, biblical submission is a command for everyone. But in the context of marriage, the function or the role of the woman is different than that of the man, and the woman is called to submit to the man, to willingly yield without resistance to the leadership of the man. The point is this, both men and women share, they have a different function altogether, Yes, we are co-equal, co-heirs, co-rulers. Uh, we, we both bear the image of God. That's, that's very much true, but we have a different function. You might, you might think of it like dancing. Now, I know some of you might be like, we don't dance, we're Christians. No, you know, that may have been old school, I don't know. But the fact is, like dancing, if you have two people that are dancing with an art, if you have two followers... It's a disaster. If you have two leaders, it's a disaster. But when you have one follower and one leader, it's glorious. My wife and I finally learned that. Just kidding. I'm not talking about marriage. I'm just talking about when we first danced together. It was like, oh, looked like we're both trying to lead here. So um, we had to work through those little kinks a little bit. But the point is, just like, kind of like dancing, there's a follower and there's a leader. And when one is trying to do what the other one's supposed to be doing or vice versa, it does not go well. It is clumsy. It is, it's, it's dysfunctional. But one thing we must understand, and ladies, let me just say this. Your submission to your husband isn't because of their worthiness. Your submission to your husband isn't because, wow, they are just so incredibly amazing. <laughs> Riley, <laughs> you, can, you can think that about me. It's okay. No. Women, wives, you are called to submit as to the Lord. That is the biblical basis for your submission, not horizontally conditioned or driven, but it is as to the Lord. It is all vertical. It's because this is what honors God, therefore I will submit to my husband as to the Lord. Not because they are always exemplifying godliness, but because I'm seeking to be honoring and obedient to Christ. If I could be so bold to say it in this way, let me just say this. The way in which a woman submits to her husband is reflective in how she will submit to Christ. The way in which a woman or a wife submits to her husband 
is indicative or reflective in how she is or will submit to Jesus Christ. Here's my encouragement as well as my exhortation to you wives and future wives. First of all, I would say this, pray for your spouse. Pray for your husband. It's easy to complain about them, I know. But maybe we could divert that energy and those words and that emotional strain into intercessory prayer. Pray for your husband. Pray that he would fulfill his role, which we will talk about in just a second. And submit willingly as to the Lord, not because of their worthiness, but because you're ultimately seeking to stand before God and say, I did everything you asked me to do. And I would say this, encourage and empower your husband as the spiritual leader of your relationship and of your family. But don't worry, wives. We get to get to the husbands, bless you. There's a lot of commentary given to the husbands. I'm not sure why that is totally. Maybe it takes us a while for it to sink in. But we have like three, four times as much text devoted to, yeah, okay, women, wives, this is how you need to function. But men, husbands, I got a lot to say to you. Look what he says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore, and this is a quote from the passage we just read out of Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So husbands or future husbands, Let me just say this. What is your mandate given by God for your wife, toward your wife? Your biblical mandate is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, how did Christ love the church? He died for the church. I mean, look at Philippians chapter 2, for example, among many passages you can turn to. Have this mind in yourself, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing and literally gave his life for his church. He humbled himself and gave his life. So now we're starting to get an idea of what our call, what our biblical mandate is, what it means to love our wives as Christ loves the church. He died for it. He willingly laid down his life. The biblical mandate for the wife is to willingly submit and to not resist her husband's leadership or headship. And at the same time, the husband's function or role is to willingly lay down his life for his wife. By the way, just not to make a joke of this at all, but 
sometimes this is best expressed in the simplest of things of life. You know, so often guys might be, you guys might be willing, you husbands might be willing going, yeah, I would totally die for my wife. But will you get off that couch and help her wash the dishes or do the dishes that you sit on the couch and relax? I'm serious, actually. You know, so, so, so often we are, uh, we are more than willing and able and eager to go, hey, I'll do the big things, but the big things are actually most uh, visibly, visibly expressed in the little things of life. What we might call little things, they're actually big things. It's the willingness to lay down our lives, not just literally, but also in the most mundane task of life, willing to serve your wife. How did Christ serve his church? He washed the feet. He gave his life. He was a living sacrifice. And we as husbands are called to love our wives in that manner. Much like a woman's willingness to submit to her husband is reflective of her willingness to submit to Christ, so also the husband's responsibility to love his wife is indicative of his submissiveness to Christ. I would say that you actually do this really in a twofold way. First of all, it is, yes, it is a dying to yourself. It is loving your wife totally and completely sacrificially. It's loving your wife as you would love your own body, as Ephesians 5 tells us. You always do what's best for you. You're always thinking about what makes my life happy and what makes me happy and what makes me more fulfilled. That's the manner in which you're called to serve your wife. What makes my wife most happy? How can I serve her? How can she flourish? How can she thrive? It is also fulfilling your role as a spiritual leader. Becoming a spiritual leader, men, husbands, soon-to-be husbands, becoming a spiritual leader does not mean you know everything. So often we dismiss our role or our responsibility because we think, well, I, my wife knows way more than me, so I just kind of kick back and let her just kind of lead the family and let her bring the kids to church and let her... No, you do it. I won't even go to, through the, statistics, the statistics, but when the man steps up and becomes the spiritual leader of the home, the entire family usually follows. But that's not always the case And I'm not saying, wives, that you're doing the wrong thing by stepping up because your husband won't. I'm not saying that. But men, this is the biblical mandate, that you are called to be the spiritual leader of your home, even if your wife knows way more of scriptures than you do. You see, it's not conditioned on your knowledge of scripture and and the things of God. It's all about, are you willing to show up and just and become and fulfill that role that God has called you to. It means to foster a context or an environment for both you and your wife and your family's spiritual growth. So in the most practical ways, let me just say to you, men, how do you become a spiritual leader in your home? Take the initiative. Take the initiative. Lead your family and family devotions. I'm not going to become all, don't, you don't have to get all legalistic or religio, you know, all religiosity over this or anything, but take the initiative and lead your family spiritually. Do what you got to do. Initiate that conversation with your wife. What do we got to do in order to help our kids? Because again, when it comes down to you, your kids are going to come, your kids are going to go. 
And then what? And so oftentimes, family units are so much about the kids and all their experiences that we go, when, it's, when the kids are gone, then what? We really have, don't have a whole lot of substance in our relationship, let alone spiritual substance in our relationship. So men, take the initiative. Step up by God's grace and his help and lead your family spiritually. If I could just say it this way, just as Jesus committed to bring out the fullest potential of his church, that's what Jesus is doing, by the way. He's committed to us till the end. He's like, I am not giving up on you. You may give up on you. You may give up on one another, but Jesus never gives up on us. He is continually and persistently pursuing us and reforming us and transforming us so that we might uh, declare and reflect the likeness of Christ most fully. So men, here's my challenge, my charge to you. Your wife should become the fullest version of God's intention for her because of your leadership. Let me say that again. Your wife should flourish and thrive and rise up and become the fullest version of God's intended design and purpose and function for her because of your leadership. Sounds easy enough, right? You cannot do it apart from his grace and spirit-empowered enablement. But that is what God has called you to do. Your, your wife and your kids rising up and flourishing and becoming who God has called them to be, created them to be, because you were faithful to lead. Let me just say this, you cannot do that unless, and this is kind of the second part of that exhortation, you cannot do that unless you are heavenly minded. We are filled and inundated in a world and a culture of a gazillion distractions. Part of, or a significant part or foundation to becoming that spiritual leader of your home and your, in your marriage is ensuring that you personally are a man who is heavenly minded, who is consumed and concerned continually with the things of Christ and him crucified. In other words, you cannot fulfill your role as a spiritual leader if you are not regularly pursuing the things of Christ. Let me just close in this way. I know the topic of marriage is a huge topic that requires way more than 40 minutes to unpack. And there's, there's a reason why there are more books written on this topic than any other topic out there. And even in my sermon notes, I had multiple pages of like, let's talk about this, let's talk about this. I'm like, we do not have the time for that. But just as we talked about in the beginning, the body taking care of the body, there's a reason why we are called to encourage and to pray for and to strengthen one another, especially in the context of our marriage. In light of all that could be discussed, let me just say this. There is a simplicity to our understanding. I believe the culture has convoluted and confused what marriage is supposed to be or intended to be as God has designed it to be. 
But this is why the scripture realigns us to what God says and says, oh, this is what marriage is all about. So may we not make it more than it is, but may we not also at the same time make it less than what it is. Father in heaven, right now we we say together and we desire together that we want to serve you. We want to honor you. We want to be obedient to you. We know that we are weak and we are frail and and fickle at times. We know that our flesh is weak. We know that we are bombarded with all kinds of distractions. We know that we live in a fallen world. We know that there's so much working against us. But we also know that we are more than conquerors through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we can and live and function and have a marriage that is God-honoring because of your spirit that indwells and consumes us. So we ask, Holy Spirit, fill us that we might honor you, that we might love our spouse as you've called us to. May we have the mindset that is willing to surrender all for the sake of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you.